0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 321. It's titled, How to Analyze complex investments. Last November, I purchased a small position in the Guggenheim Enhanced Equity Income Fund. The ticker is GPM. This is a closed-end fund that seeks to harvest what is known as the volatility risk premium. The volatility risk premium represents the compensation that investors receive for bearing the risk of higher volatility and market losses. In other words, investors receive income for being willing to help other investors protect against losses in, let's say, the stock market. This is usually done by selling call or put options. It's an example of a carry trade. A carry trade is an investment strategy that earns income as long as nothing happens. And by nothing changing in the case of this particular closed-end fund, the stock market doesn't fall. We discussed carry trades in episode 283 of the podcast. I could take up the entire episode explaining option strategies and this closed fund, but that isn't really today's topic. It's about the principles of analyzing complex investments, some which employ options. When it comes to investing, I have a built-in filter that keeps me from purchasing investments I probably shouldn't. And that filter is, I have to explain to over 1,000 plus members why I made that particular investment and how it works. I share my entire portfolio in all my holdings and when I make a trade, and so knowing I have to explain it sometimes keeps me from purchasing a particular holding, although it didn't in this case. You can have a similar filter in your investing. I discussed it in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. The first question is, what is it? We should be able to explain to a friend or family member a particular investment before we invest, because doing so helps us realize what we may not know. It humbles us. This particular investment that I made in the Guggenheim Enhanced Equity Income Fund was an experiment, and I made it clear on the Plus Member website that this is risky. It's experimental. But within a couple days of making the investment, Drew, a member of the site, kindly questioned me on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus member forums as to why I had made this investment. He pointed out a number of items. One, this is a closed-end fund. Closed-end funds have very high expense ratios. There's a free investment guide on MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com on how to invest in closed-end funds. I knew that this was an expensive fund, but I thought I had attributes that more than compensated for that. The second point he made was that large amount of leverage that this particular closed-end fund used. It invested about 150% of net assets in the equal-weighted S&P 500 index and also ETFs that invest in the Russell 2000 and NASDAQ 100. Then the closed-end fund would sell or write call options on the Russell 2000 and NASDAQ 100. This was effectively a covered call strategy with leverage. By writing or selling call options, the closed-end fund was receiving income, premium income, and then it participated in the upside of the S&P 500, but it had the downside of 150% of the stock market. And that was sort of the challenge with the closed-end fund. It was risky. When we look at what happened this year, this particular closed-end fund lost 50% during the market downturn. Whereas Plain Vanilla covered call strategies, such as the Wisdom Tree CBOE S&P 500 put-right strategy ETF, which I also own, that was only down 28%. I sold this particular closed end fund five days after I bought it. It's a little embarrassing to admit that I made a mistake. I shouldn't have bought it. I should have better understood the risk. I spent a lot of time analyzing different investments for plus members for my own investments. And it's something, as investors, we're going to have to get better at. Because, as I discussed in episode 277 of the podcast, about recent changes that the U.S. Security Exchange Commission made that would lead to a proliferation of ETFs. There are going to be many more ETFs than there have been. In 2020 alone, there have been over 220 new exchange-traded funds, and exchange-traded notes launched. The reason why is that the SEC now allows for actively managed exchange-traded funds. Previously, most ETFs were passive. They were seeking to track a specific benchmark or index. Now they don't have to. They can be just like an actively managed mutual fund, except it's in exchange-traded fund form. You don't get as much transparency with an actively managed ETF as you do with other ETFs. There have also been regulatory changes where it's easier for ETF sponsors to launch an ETF. So we're seeing a lot more of them. Some of them are a little gimmicky. If we look at the ETFs that were launched, there's the SoFi Weekly Income ETF, TGIF. They say they're going to pay income weekly. And you get to pay 0.6% for that weekly income, which essentially is a bond ETF. It's buying investment-grade and non-investment-grade bonds. The clever ticker symbol, TGIF, but do you need an ETF that promises to pay weekly income? Because ETFs receive income all the time if they're invested in bonds and stocks. Some of the new ETFs are very political. There's the American Conservatives Values ETF. The ETF website says the fund is actively managed and seeks to avoid ownership of companies which the advisor determines disproportionately support liberal causes, charities, advocacy groups, campaigns, candidates, PACs, and think tanks. This ETF is going to charge 0.75% to effectively own the S P 500 but exclude companies it wants to boycott, including Facebook, Johnson & Johnson, Walt Disney Company, Walmart. Progressive Insurance, Wells Fargo, Twitter, among others. If you'd want to invest more liberally, there's the DEMS, Political Contribution ETF, DEMZ. This particular ETF invests in those S&P 500 companies where the companies and their management give at least 75% of their political contributions to Democratic candidates and political action committees. How then do we analyze these complex investments, including new ETFs. Well, first, we need to ask, what is it for? What is the objective of the particular investment? What niche or problem is it trying to solve? Is it a true problem? Is there an investment reason for this particular investment? Or is it the latest marketing ploy with product marketers getting on the bandwagon? We should understand what is the investment vehicle. Is it a mutual fund, a closed-end fund, an exchange-traded fund, or an exchange-traded note, and understand the differences between those investment vehicles? Podcast episode 273 was on exchange-traded notes, which are unsecured debt obligations of the sponsor. They're like a bond with a maturity date, but it's usually 30 years or more. I didn't realize when I did that episode that when an exchange traded note closes and decides to no longer issue new shares, that sometimes it just delists and continues trading. But the ETN sponsor is not issuing new shares or doing anything to keep that price of the ETN in line with its indicated value. And it can lead to huge price swings. A few weeks ago, in the Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter that I send, I profiled Jesper Lanning, who lost more than $100,000 this past August in the delisted Credit Suisse Velocity Shares 3X Inverse Natural Gas ETN, because the ETN's price soared to $15,000, even though its indicative note value was only $125. Jesper was short that ETN and lost a ton of money. So we need to understand the nuances of the particular investment vehicle. In today's world, we need to understand if it's an exchange traded fund, whether it's active or passive. Does it follow an index? The benefit of an ETF that is passively managed, that is following a targeted index, if it's a new ETF, you can usually get information on the index with some historical performance. It's easier to understand exactly how the ETF will invest. Whereas if it's an active ETF, there is no benchmark that it's tracking. It's whatever the advisor or sponsor wants to invest in. Now, they have a prospectus, but these prospectuses are usually written quite broadly. So their mandates tend to be more broad. And as a result, we have less clarity how the particular investment will be selecting securities. For that reason, we need to understand who the sponsor is. Who is the manager? What's their experience, particularly if the strategy is more complex? What are the assets under management? If it's a smaller ETF or an ETN and it's newly launched, if it doesn't do well in terms of gathering assets, it could be closed early. And if it's smaller, there might not be as much liquidity when buying or selling the ETF, because there's just not that much trading in it. And so there's a bigger price gap between the bid and ask, the price being asked to buy the ETF versus the price being asked to sell the ETF. We need to understand the fees. What's the expense ratio? One of the trends that we're seeing within the ETF space is sponsors are issuing new ETFs that, do essentially the same thing as existing ETFs, but they don't charge as much. For example, the ETF Invesco QQQ. It's an exchange-traded fund that tracks the NASDAQ 100 index. It has $138 billion in assets. The expense ratio is 0.2%. Invesco recently opened the NASDAQ 100 ETF. It's tracking the same exact benchmark as QQQ, In this case, the ticker is QQQM, and the expense ratio is lower, 0.15%. It has about $300 million in assets under management. If you want to invest long-term in the NASDAQ 100, you would be better off investing in QQQM because this expense ratio is lower. If you're already invested in QQQ, You may not want to sell that and invest in QQQM because if it's taxable money, you might have to pay a capital gains tax on that. If you're a trader, potentially QQQ will be more liquid to get in and out of than QQQM. I've not looked at how liquid either of them are. We also need to understand what is the upside and what is the downside. What is the potential return for the ETF and how is that return being generated? And what is the risk? How much could an investor potentially lose in this particular investment? This gets a little tricky as these ETFs and other investments have gotten more complicated. And there's a follow-up question to that. What is the catch? Some of these new ETFs look very enticing, but there's usually a catch. Not that they're trying to trick us. It's just that there's no free lunch in investing. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/david. That's M O N A R C H M O N E Y.com/david for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. I got a number of questions recently on something called the Innovator Triple Stacker ETF, TSOC, and there's the Innovator Double Stacker ETF, as well as the Double Stacker 9 Buffer ETF. These are new ETFs issued by Innovator ETFs. When I first looked at it, I thought, this is cool. The Innovator Triple Stacker ETF provides upside exposure to the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100, and the Russell 2000. So you get three times up exposure, but only downside to the S&P 500. Three times up and only have exposure to one time down. Sign me up, except I read it too fast. It has exposure to those three benchmarks or ETFs up to a cap. And that's the catch. This particular series of ETFs use what are known as flex options. These are special options where the buyer the options can customize exactly the, the exposure that they want. So typically, if you were going to structure an option like that, very specialized, you would have to construct it over the counter. In other words, you would have to find the counterparty and then agree to the terms. And then if the counterparty defaulted, then then you're exposed. You have the counterparty risk. These flex options are facilitated through the Chicago Board of Exchange. And so they have the exposure. They're still very customized in terms of the key contract terms. The Innovator ETF series is structuring these option contracts. You need to look at the prospectus in detail to realize, okay, here's the catch. You do get 100% of the downside of the S&P 500, specifically SPY, the S&P 500 ETF. But the upside is capped, but it's capped for each particular benchmark or ETF. In other words, the cap might be 8% for the S&P 8% Eight percent for the NASDAQ, eight percent for the Russell two thousand. So if in a given year, if that index returns twelve percent on a price basis, you only get eight percent of the upside. It's a stacker because you get exposure to three benchmark, but independently. So combined the cap might be twenty-one percent for the entire ETF. But if one component does fifteen and the others only do Two or three percent, and you won't get that fifteen percent upside. You'd only get the eight or whatever the cap is. In addition, you don't get any dividends or share of the profits because this exposure is based on options. These series typically expire after a year. So if you discover this ETF six months in and it's already appreciated six percent, let's say, for each of those indices, you only get the upside participation. In about two percentage points more in those benchmark appreciation because it's already near the cap. So you have to be aware how far away from the cap is it. So the catch in this case is no dividends and the cap and the caps are separate. I became familiar with the Innovator ETF series because I analyzed a new ETF they came out with in early 2019. It was called the Innovator's S&P 500 Ultra Buffer ETF. I discussed this in plus episode 240. In this case, they again cap the upside at about 11%, I believe. But then the downside, as an investor, you would take the first 5% of the loss. And then from negative 5 to negative 30%, you wouldn't be exposed to any of those losses. But then you would be exposed to any losses over 30%. Again, you didn't get any dividends. What makes this type of ETF so complicated is where we can understand the payoff structure. What we can't get our head around is how likely is that to happen? How often, for example, for this triple stacker ETF, will a particular benchmark do better than 8% versus losing money? They don't show that data for these stacker series because they are actively managed. For this buffer series, at least back in early 2019, It was still a passively managed ETF because actively managed ETFs weren't allowed yet. Which means, if it was passive, it was tracking an index, and because of that, there was a white paper and a back test, so I could see how this particular index had done. And going back to two thousand six, it had returned five and a half percent annualized, compared to the S and P five hundred, which had returned eight point seven percent. So over time, that payoff, with the 11% cap, no dividends, and some protection on the downside, had lagged the S&P 500 by just over 3%. It was less volatile, had a standard deviation of 9.4%, compared to 19.5% for the S&P 500, but you only captured about two-thirds of the return in their back test. Who knows what will happen going forward? And that's one of the challenges with these complex ETFs we don't have a good understanding of what the payoff would be. And it makes it very difficult to implement as part of a portfolio because where does it fit? Wouldn't it be better to, instead of trying to protect part of the downside, just to scale your stock market exposure so you're comfortable with the amount of downside? For example, recognizing stocks have a maximum drawdown, a maximum potential loss of about 60%. Be aware, that's the risk. We need to be comfortable with that. But when we try to get cued and protect against it using an ETF wrapper and options, it becomes much more difficult to understand. And there is no free lunch. These ETFs are having to buy options. If you used 30-day put options, so bought 30-day put options that expired every 30 days and then rolled them over, and try to protect against losses greater than 10%, it would cost 6.4% per year. Now, this was back when I calculated it, when the VIX, which is the implied volatility, priced into the S&P 500 was in the mid-20s, which is about where it's at today. When VIX, or that implied volatility, is lower, then the cost of hedging is lower. But right now, it would cost about 6.4% to protect against losses greater than 10% it would cost 2.3% per year to protect against losses greater than 20%. Is that a wager you're willing to make, to give up 2.3% of the upside to protect against a loss greater than 20%? Now, if you wanted to protect against any losses, that would cost over 26% per year, which gets back to that volatility risk premium that ETF I own, P-U-T-W, CBOE, S&P 500, put right strategy ETF. It is writing options, selling them at the current level of the S&P. They roll it over every 30 days. The potential return is 26% per year right now. If the stock market never falls within a month. And now that's not a reasonable assumption. Over time, that ETF should earn 4 to 6% per year because the stock market does fall throughout the year, but I'm willing to own it because it's a different return driver. It's harvesting that volatility risk premium, that carry trade, where you earn income as long as nothing bad happens. The stock market doesn't plummet in a given month. But it gets more complicated with these other ETFs because, well, you take the first 5% of the loss, then you don't take the next 25 percentage points, and then you take the losses greater than that, but we're going to cap the upside. It's the same strategy using options, it just has many more layers. Same with these triple stacker ETFs. Now we got three different benchmarks, three different caps, just greater complexity. The bottom line is then, there will be hundreds and hundreds of ETFs introduced every year. People will be recommending them. There will be a lot of press for them. They'll be on podcast. We need to go back to the basics. Study the prospectus. Look at the risks that are described. What is the upside? What is the downside? What is the catch? What am I giving up for the perceived benefit of this particular ETF, both in terms of explicit fees, but maybe some other aspect, like I'm giving up the dividend because it uses an option strategy. And then decide, does this even have a role in my portfolio? Does it introduce an additional complication? Is it promising to protect against something that I could protect against more simply by just owning less in stocks and not have to pay such a high expense ratio for this perceived protection? Now, I'm not saying that these ETFs are bad. There have been products like this around for years, typically structured as some type of contract offered by a brokerage firm. But now they're more in the public domain because they're structured as ETFs. And they might look like plain vanilla ETFs, but they're not. We really need to dig in and understand them. And hopefully I provided some perspective to understand. Here's what we need to ask before we invest in them. What is it for? What is the investment vehicle? Is it active or passive? Who is the sponsor or manager and what's their experience? What is the upside? What is the downside? What are the fees? How much assets does it have under management? And what is the catch? That, then, is episode 321. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to become a better investor, there's two ways I can help. First, consider signing up for my free Insider's Guide email newsletter. It's where I will share expert commentary and other valuable content on money, investing, and the economy. It's some of the best writing I do each week, and it just goes to your inbox. A second way you could become a better investor is by becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is a community with professional-grade portfolio tools, training to help you get more serious about your investing, to invest like a professional. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is for those who choose to manage their own money. It will provide you the tools and training you need to manage an institutional quality portfolio filter through the clutter, and make wise financial decisions. You can learn more at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.